be in the lobby with children or if you're in here with children. There were parts of our message this morning that will be adult-ish. I will do my very best to keep them in that place to where they are suitable for all ears. But uh, your Bible would likely be rated R, at least if it were made into a movie. So uh, I, I would just remind you there are things that we discuss as the body of Christ because God's Word speaks to those issues. And among those, we're going to come to a topic that has touched us all. And I want to begin this morning, and please don't be embarrassed. Uh, please don't don't be one of those people who uh, doesn't acknowledge what's going on in your life. How many of you, in, in a first-person sense, maybe your parents, your parents' parents, somebody in your family, how many of you have been touched by divorce? Raise your hands. As you can see, it's virtually every hand in the room. And so the subject matter that we will eventually get to this morning, because Jesus is now going to move from uh, that speaking about the love of money to divorce. And it seems again to be disconnected. But I want you to notice how he bridges this gap, because divorce has touched virtually every family, especially in America. And it was very prevalent then. And it was the Pharisees, in fact, who invented what we call no-fault divorce. They invented it. And in fact, they came up with such a trivial understanding of marriage in general that divorce could be for something as simple as your wife burned your dinner. Uh, you, you just didn't like the way she looked anymore. She was not attentive. And it was a largely male-dominated affair at that time. And the wives very rarely even had any rights. And so in the Jewish culture, marriage was extremely messed up. Can I say to you that in our culture, marriage is extremely messed up? And I would also remind you that it was, in fact, God who invented marriage. He presided over the first marriage. It's not a civil institution. It is a God-ordained institution that he invented, and he is the one who defines what marriage looks like. And so it is he who defines how marriage is continued and how marriage is conducted. And so this morning... As we turn our attention again to the scriptures, just a handful of verses, verse 14 to 18 here in Luke 16, as we look at Jesus and the law, and notice how I phrase this, because it's very important, because the context here is that Jesus is going to answer, really, the cry of many today in our New Testament times, in the age of grace. Where does the law fit? in the body of Christ. Do we just toss it out? After all, we're saved by grace through faith. Amen? Say amen. Because you're saved by grace through faith. It will always be that you are saved by grace and through faith. But can I also say to you that not one yot, not one tittle of the law, Jesus is going to say, will pass away. The law is still God's standard. 
It was then and it is now. But how we keep the law has now been changed by the cross. How we relate to God has been changed by the cross. But the law has not changed. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. God, that we can turn our attention to the vitality of your word. That it would speak to us and touch us. That you would anoint these words on these pages. God, to pierce our hearts. To help us understand and to know. What is your good and your perfect will for us? We're so grateful, God, for your love for us. And we pray now that you would just instruct us from heaven. As we study your word, would you speak? We bless you. We praise you. We ask all of this in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Verse 14, we turn our attention back one verse that we covered last week. And now the Pharisee, who were lovers of money. Notice how he puts it in the absolutist point of view. They were. Men are. People are. And yet your Bible says, Thou shalt not be covetous. And covetousness is a deep or a longing love for something that one does not have. Could be someone else's animal, someone else's money, someone else's wife. It encompasses the whole scope of the human condition in wanting and longing for, lusting after loving. They were lovers of money. They coveted money. They lusted after money. And so he begins now to address this whole issue. And so they also heard all these things and they derided him. And then verse 15. So they began to mock the Lord about his placement of money in the world system. He said, look, guys. Being a lover of money will get you all kinds of heartache. It'll bring things into your life that you won't want. Having enough of it, good thing. Having good things is a good thing. But making it your aim, making it your goal, making it your God, not a good thing. And so verse 15, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. We like to think that we invented situational ethics, existentialism, narcissism, the, the justification of all things by the simple actions that we undertake. We think that's a modern way of thinking. Can I tell you that the Pharisees actually invented that as well? Jesus said so. You are those who justify yourselves before men. The religious legalists of the day were the inventor of situational ethics. We'll just make it whatever we want. We'll make marriage what we want it to be. We'll make personal, intrapersonal relationships what we want them to be. We'll define them how we see fit. In other words, they invented narcissism. We'll just make things how we like them. Because frankly, we don't like 
what God likes. It's pretty much the argument of our day on a lot of things, isn't it? Well, I don't think God should be able to say that to me. Well, tough. He's God. You're not. Think about it for a second. If God said it, there's that old bumper sticker. That settles it. I believe it. We're not supposed to be standing around going, well, I don't like what God said. It's exactly what the Pharisees were. I don't like what God said. I'm going to change what God said to make it say what I like it to say. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but notice this. But God knows your hearts. In a vernacular, you ain't fooling nobody. God knows your heart. Knows why you think what you think. Knows what you think. How long you've been thinking it. The excuses that you've made up for thinking it. The action that you've undertaken to make it so. God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed, notice this, among men, is an abomination in the sight of God. The stupid, idiotic rules that disagree with God, the laws that we have passed that are contrary to God's word, are an abomination to God. All of them. Just because divorce is legal doesn't mean God approves of it. Just because we're arguing gay marriage doesn't mean God approves of it. Just because we think it's okay to kill babies doesn't mean God approves of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus is saying to the religious, elitist, legalist of the day who have changed things into laws permitting what God has not permitted, because they were also the government of the day, they were a theocracy. From God's perspective, He is not buying it. No more than he is okay with murder, is he okay with fornication. He's not okay with lying. He's not okay with deception. He is not okay with hatred. He is not okay with racism. He's not okay with a whole lot of things. And he's going to use an example that touches us today. The law and the prophets were until John, verse 16 says, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached. In other words, grace was on the horizon. The law and the prophets, that was the way men related to God up until that time. He said, look, here it is. Here's the law. This is how you relate to me. And Moses expounded on the Ten Commandments. Then we have the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. The law gets expanded upon, and now here it is. Here's the, here's the way you relate to me, God says. He says, that was until John. But the cross will change all of that. And everyone is pressing into it. Oh, hallelujah for grace. Amen. 
God's love poured out to mankind on Calvary's cross. But God didn't change His standard. God didn't lower His holiness at the cross of Christ. God did not eliminate His hatred for sin because of the cross. He only gave us a relationship to Himself by that grace that now eliminated the penalty of the law. He says, you now relate to me by grace through faith. You do not relate to me by the law, but the law is still the standard. For it is easier for heaven and earth. You read this? It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than from one little tittle of the law to be made untrue. That's what that word fail means. In other words, the law was still absolute in God's mind and true. And the standard. And he uses an interesting word, we don't understand it, tittle. It's a Hebrew punctuation mark. And it is the smallest of all of the Hebrew punctuation marks. So if you're writing in Hebrew, you could put in a yot or a tittle. And they were rather like we would use an apostrophe or perhaps a period. They're tiny. They're not words themselves. They might add an accent to a word. They're not the substance. They're an accent. And Jesus said, it is easier for an accent of a single word of truth. It's easier for the world to pass away than to change one tittle of the law. Do you understand what he's saying? New Testament, folks, not Old Testament. It's reason this is so important. And now he uses an example. One that was very pertinent in that society. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here's why he says these things, and we'll expound on this. Because in God's eyes, he invented marriage. In God's eyes, he defined what marriage is. In God's eyes, you take your vows before God. It's not a civil institution. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God invents marriage some six plus thousand years ago. Man does not get to redefine what he thinks marriage should be. He says, mm-mm, doesn't work that way. So he's using marriage as an example of the law. This is Jesus and the law. What does the law say? And see, what we're looking at in all these great issues of life, people turn to anything and everything but God's Word. Amen? Amen? 
That's what the Pharisees were doing. They're saying, we don't like what the law says, so we'll just make it so you can get divorced for any reason that you want. And so God says, Jesus being God, amen, says, mm-mm, doesn't work that way. Of all of his teachings, as he taught about money, what do they do? They mock him, they laugh. Jesus has not changed his view on money or morality. Period. He has not. And just because we have no-fault divorce, and just because people like to say, well, you know, we live in the New Testament, so we can do whatever we want, you better read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 if you think that's true. Because it's not true. God's position on divorce hasn't changed. Never has, never will. He hates it. He will always hate it. Even if there is a biblical allowance for it, which we'll get to in a moment. And I want you to notice that Jesus is speaking extremely authoritarian here. He's not giving anybody any wiggle room. He doesn't do as he did in Matthew chapter 19, which we'll also get to. And he gives two exceptions that God allows the dissolution of a marriage. Notice I use very carefully the word allows, not ordains, not purposes, not wills, not wants, simply allows, and he gives the reason for it. Why? Because if God invented marriage, don't you think he knows what divorce is going to do to a marriage? Don't you think he knows what it's going to do to humanity? Don't you think he knows what's going to happen when a divorce occurs? Do you not know that God knows what it's going to do to those kids, to your finances, to everything else that exists in your life when you go through the pain of divorce? Don't you think God knows that? And yet we treat it with flippancy. We look at divorce like, well, it's kind of like, well, I'm going to change my shoes. Need to change my husband. Need to change my wife. You know, I don't like it. And, and let's face it. When you go to the shoe store, I don't know about you, sometimes I lust after shoes. I, look, I like those shoes. Bet you those shoes feel a lot better than the shoes I got on right now. After all, they got air gel in them. Well, buy me some of them shoes. And then I'll be able to walk soft. So, sometimes we look at marriage about like we look at shoes. Well, you know, I don't like these. I mean, after all, I got a hole in them. Got a hole in my marriage. Better get new shoes. That is exactly how the Pharisees taught divorce. Burnt toast, out of here. Slap her a couple of times, let her go. Can I say to you that exactly what happens here in verse 14 is still going on today? They, they laughed at him. They derided him. When you stick to what God's word says, count on getting laughed at. 
When you say, you know what, I'm going to work on my marriage and I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to continue to do what God says. I'm going to suffer long and be kind. And if it takes the rest of my days, I'm going to try and work it out because that's God's perfect will. God will honor that. He may not be able to prevent a divorce, but for you, you will be able to stand before a holy God and say, God, I did everything I possibly could. So what about the law of Moses? The Lord wasn't going to get them, let him get away with it. And he gives them three things that we can pull out of these verses. You see, people still laugh. Oh, get out of that marriage. I mean, after all, you know. I mean, you're going to be better off. Anybody ever heard that one? You're going to be better off. Just leave the jerk. You know, dump her. If I gave you a list of some of the insane things that people have come into my office and given me as the reason they're going to leave their spouse, your hair would curl. Yeah, what hair? All right, let's use another example. I can't even think of one. You just threw me off. But yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing. The excuses that are given for two Christians who know what God's Word says, and, and they will turn around and say, I'm going to do it anyway. I deserve to be happy. That's one of the new big ones. I deserve to be happy. No, you deserve to die and go to hell. That's what you deserve, amen? That's why we call it mercy and grace. You deserve to die and go to hell. You do not deserve to be happy. There is no verse in here that says you deserve to be happy. Period. Now, if you're walking with Christ, will you be blessed? Absolutely. It does say that. But as far as you getting to pick and choose what defines your happiness, that's not in there. Matter of fact, it says you might just have some tribulation, some trials, some trouble, some tests. You see, heaven's values are not the same as human values. Down here, people admire those who are rich, and people admire those who have done their own thing. Not so much with God. And so he gives them several things. And I want you to notice just one thing here. When he uses the word abomination, that particular word's only found two other times in all of Scripture. I want to take a guess where they're found in describing the Antichrist and in describing the harlot who rides the beast. Get the picture about divorce? It's an abomination to God. Not because he hates people who've been divorced. He loves people who have been divorced. And he can heal the pain of divorce. But he hates Divorce, it's an abomination. He hates it. It's not something that we say, well, you know, just, this didn't work it out. We are incompatible. We have irreconcilable differences. Just because our laws say that that is acceptable doesn't change his law. 
And it is so with all of the law, by the way. And so Jesus uses this as an example. You see, there, there was an essential nature to it. It, it just is. And now he's going to tell us that it's also eternal. When you look at these things, notice the eternal nature. It's easier for heaven and earth. When did God create things? In the beginning, right? He created heaven and earth in the beginning. Marriage was created in the beginning. From God's perspective, He invented it with an essential, eternal nature. When He invented the law, when He said, here's the law, how you humans will relate to each other and to me. That's what the law does, right? Basically, half is us relating to each other. The other half is us relating to God. That's the law in a nutshell. He says, here it is. What He's saying is, guys, marriage is made of the same stuff as eternity. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people think, kind of undermined the law. It didn't. It just lifted the law to a new plane, to a new place. And now, grace predominates the law. And I want you to get this, because it's so essential to us. When you read the book of Romans, just read the whole book, but specifically chapter 6 and 7 and 8, you, you see the superiority of grace, and that's absolutely true. But grace did not change the law as a standard. It only changed it as a system. God's still holy, amen? So if He creates something and He says, this is holy before Me, He's basically saying, this is how you do this. This is the way you relate in this area of life. It's not up to us to say, well, I don't like that. You see, the law didn't change. Just how we relate to it. And praise God for that, amen? Because if you're, if you want to be here, and that's why I feel sorry for Seventh Day Adventists. You want to relate to God by the law? If you want to keep it as a system? then you diminish grace. You make grace a very tough commodity to come by. Grace is a free gift of God. Amen? Say amen. amen. You need to say amen. Because amen to God's grace. And I don't want to dismiss God's grace in all this. But you need to understand that the relationship by grace does not change the standard by which we understand grace. That's why when a Christian comes to me, again, read the book of Romans. What then? Should we go on sinning that grace might abound? Uh, well, no. Uh-uh. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not ever. We still live like a holy person. We still do what God says. So His words, in that sense, are still absolutes. So there is an essential nature, there is an eternal nature, and now we're going to see there's an ethical nature to the law. He gives them, here it is, here's an issue you guys can all understand, divorce. 
That's why I had you all raise your hands. Divorce has touched every single family in this room. Touched my family. I was well into my 30s before I really got a grip on the damage that had been done to my life by the divorce of my parents. Well into my 30s. I carried hatred. I carried anger. I carried bitterness. I carried hurt that I couldn't even articulate because of two people that chose to do exactly what God's Word says God hates. It's never a good idea to do what God says He hates. It will be a painful experience. 100% of the time. He's not going to change his standard. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is direct defiance to the school of Hillel that these Pharisees had gone to. They, they took the other position. Ah, doesn't matter. God doesn't care. No big deal. Do what feels good. Do what your heart tells you. Anybody ever heard that one? Do what your heart tells you to do. If you come into my office and you're looking for counseling and marriage and you tell me that you're doing what your heart told me to do, I'll tell you your heart is deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and who can know it, including you? So Scripture says. Your heart will deceive you. Your feelings will deceive you. Your emotions will deceive you. But the Word of God stands forever. It is essential, it is eternal, and it is ethical. You, you see, the Lord's standard is recorded by Luke as absolute. It's without exception. Now, we know that there are two exceptions that have been granted in Scripture. And as you look at these things, they're very, very specific. And I want to remind you of a very specific axiom that's used in the interpretation of Scripture, and that is this, found in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. For no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, God said what he meant, meant what he said, and expects us to do it. It's not up to us to redefine what Scripture says. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is another way to look at it. Okay? God is God. He doesn't change for you. He doesn't change for culture. He doesn't change his ethics to fit our day. He's not an existentialist. He's not a moral relativist. He's an absolutist in that sense. And so as you look at what's said there in Matthew chapter 19, it says there in verse 3, the Pharisees again also came to him, testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That was their belief. That is exactly what the school of Hillel taught. Whatever reason you come up with, just go have the rabbi bless it, it's all good. Whatever reason you have, just go to the court and have them give you a certificate of divorce and it's okay. That's our world, amen? Nothing's changed. How we do it has changed a little bit, but the principle is exactly the same. Jesus got asked the question that we get asked today. 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, in other words, God made man, amen? That's what he's saying. I made them. And notice what he said. He didn't make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh, so that then they are no longer two but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, God did the joining. Not man, not a civil institution, not a government, not a Supreme Court. God invented marriage. Remember, essential, eternal, ethical. That is God's view of marriage. You can't change it. You don't get to redefine it. He told us what it is. And the reason I'm doing this is because this degrades marriage. When you redefine marriage, you make it into something other than what God clearly said it is, you're doing the same thing that we've done with our divorce laws. Okay, we'll just change it. We don't like it. You can't do that. It is an abomination to God. It's not tolerance. It's sin. It's sin, folks. And sin never gets you God's best. It gets you chastised. It causes harm. It causes pain. I don't want that for anybody. And neither does God. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, not because God changed his opinion, because your hearts are hard, because you don't want to do what God says you should do, because your hearts are messed up, Moses allowed divorce. God didn't change his position. God didn't situationally look at it and say, well, I better change my mind. He said, it's permitted for you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries her and is divorced also commits adultery. You get the picture? Here's God's standards. This is what he meant. This is what we're supposed to do. And just because you don't like it doesn't mean you get to change what it says. Period. It's simple. And in that same vein, he defined what marriage is. He said, here it is. Now, I want to spend just a couple of minutes because I think it's important. I'm going to give you two things. As God's Word is, for us who are believers, the authority on all things of life and godliness. Amen? Can we say amen to that? So the biblical teaching on divorce is what the Bible teaches and it's what God said. Not what mankind allows. And the reason I'm saying this is because the moment you begin to go down the world's road, you can have any and every excuse to do exactly what God's Word says you're not supposed to do. And it doesn't matter what subject matter you pick. That's why he picked divorce. He says, here it is. Don't be a lover of money. And oh, by the way, the one thing that you say and you do all the time, it's not okay. 
It's bad for you. It will hurt you. It is only a permission by man. It's not an ordination by God. Allowance is not approval. Do you understand? What God allows does not mean He approves of it. What God lets you get away with does not mean He's okay with it. You get the picture? It's really important because this is all sin, quite frankly. Doesn't matter what you engage in, just because God lets you get away with it doesn't mean He's okay with it. You can write that down in your Bible. Just because He lets you get away with it does not mean He's okay with it. So divorce becomes only His permissive will under two exact circumstances. Unrepentant sexual sin of your partner or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Okay? Those two things, that's it. Those are the only two reasons. But God still hates it, even though He allows it. Secondly, and hear this very well, for those of you that have been touched, for those of you that are maybe divorced, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is grace for the divorced person. There, there is abounding grace for the divorced person. Just like there is abounding grace for the thief and the liar and the homosexual. And all, there is grace for those who will repent and say, look, I blew it, Lord, I'm sorry. There's grace. There's grace. There's grace. It's not unforgivable. It's not unpardonable. But will it damage your life? Yes. Will it hurt you? Yes. Will it cause things in your life that you don't ever want to go? Yes. And so God hates it. God hates it. It's what Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, and therefore take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You see, on one side of virtually every divorce is treachery. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to beat that person up. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. I'm going to extract from them what I think I am owed. And so God hates it. He can forgive it, but He hates it. In ministry, it carries an additional penalty. Divorce will disqualify you from ministry. First Timothy chapter 3 is very clear. I do not personally believe that a divorced man can fill the role of pastor. I think Scripture says that very clearly. Doesn't mean he can't be used, by the way. Maybe in an administrative capacity. Somewhere in ministry, possibly. But it says very plainly that a man who desires the office of bishop must be the husband of one wife. Not two, not three, one. So there's an additional penalty there. 
Divorce is always a concession. It's never God's best. It always causes problems. You see, then legal divorce was a concession to the unfaith to the faithful partner because of the unfaithful partner or the abandonment, as First Corinthians chapter seven says, of someone who uh, does not know the Lord. But in no case, not ever, in all of your Bible, is God okay with divorce. Now, does that mean that at some point in time it may be inevitable? It may be inevitable. If you're stuck in a situation to where your partner will not repent, you're stuck in a situation where you cannot fulfill your marital obligation, by the way, and this is where it gets a little touchy, we have an obligation, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to be each other's adultery insurance in marriage. Your bodies don't belong to you. They belong to your spouse. And when you are absolutely unable to fulfill that role and it's being sought elsewhere, you may have no choice because the the deal has been done for you. But it's still not God's perfect plan. He would want to reconcile your marriage if possible. We give up way before God gives up on marriage. Way before God gives up. Now in saying that, is it a battle? Oh yes, of course, because Satan loves divorce. Loves to tear up marriages. I don't know that practically speaking there's anything that he has more rejoicing over than the detriment of the family. Look, I destroyed another one. I can destroy the kids with it, grandkids and everybody else. Every time a holiday comes up, for the first 30 years of my life, I cried at every single holiday. Every last one of them. All I wanted was for my family to be back together. All I wanted was for my parents to look each other in the eye and say, I love you and I love my children. Divorce kills. And don't ever buy the lie that it's the best thing for the kids. That is a lie straight from hell. What kids want is mom and dad living in the same house. That's what kids want. Ask them. I've asked thousands of them. As bad as it was, I wish my mom and dad were still together. And yes, God forgives. Yes, God can help us move on. But it will always bear a mark. That's why God only gives two reasons that he even allows it. Can you imagine if he had done as the Rabbi Hillel had said? Well, unless you're having a bad day. Unless somebody more handsome or more beautiful comes by. Unless somebody with a little more money comes by. Unless someone with a bigger house comes by. Unless, 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 unless. People would be going, okay, well, where, what page is that on? Can you tell me what page? Oh, financial stability. Like that one. can't tell you how many divorces have happened because one party or the other. I just want to be financially more stable. Frankly, if God let us divorce for that reason, we'd all be divorced. Amen? Financial stability? Think about it. There's always somebody with more money. There's always someone with more hair. 
There's always someone with more of everything. Except kids. Want less kids. Well, I'm just tired of being a mom. I have looked into women's eyes and they said, I'm tired of being a mom. And on the other side, the husband's being a jerk and won't do a thing at the house. And no wonder she's tired of being a mom. You need to get on your knees and pray together. And ask God to forgive you of your sin. And repent before a holy God. And say, God, I'm sorry that I am not keeping my covenant with you. Richer, poorer, sickness, health. Got it? Till death do us part. Most people have taken those vows. Do we mean it? That's why God hates it. Because it always causes pain. I'm going to have the elders begin to pass out the elements of communion as we wrap this up this morning. So why did Jesus introduce this subject Almost so abruptly. Why, why did that happen? It's because of the damage. It's because of the pain. It's because of the anguish. It's because of the absolute lack of the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. And if we will do it there, isn't it easier to do it with lying? Isn't it easier to do it with cheating? Isn't it easier to do with alcohol abuse? Isn't it easier, infinitely easier in other areas of our life? Think about it for a second. Make no mistake, divorce is hard. It's difficult. And most people really don't take it horribly lightly. But if we'll do it there, it's infinitely easier in other areas of our life to say, eh, don't really care that God's Word says I shouldn't do that. How many people do you know that have gotten divorced and fallen into deep compromise in their their walk with the Lord or maybe walked away from the Lord? You see, Jesus wasn't going to modify His stance on it. Morality, money, doesn't matter. He's the same. And so he uses this as an example. And you see, when when Jesus began to speak these things publicly, they flew in the face of the of the teaching of the day. There there was absolutely a sense that this was against the culture. When you stick out a difficult marriage and honor God, you're going against the flow of culture. When you press on through the hard things in marriage, you're going against the culture. But you're going with God. It honors Him. It blesses Him. Because He hasn't changed His stance on marriage, morality, money. He hasn't changed his position on hatred. He hasn't changed his position on vengeance. He hasn't changed his position on being unkind, mean-spirited, bitter, unforgiving. 
You see, if you'll do something as difficult as leave your children, if you'll do something so painful as rip your family apart, being a liar becomes pretty easy. Being a cheat becomes really easy. Being a drunk becomes really easy. Being a drug abuser becomes really easy. And so Jesus says, look guys, brothers and sisters, God hates divorce because it hurts. It's painful. It's agonizing. It it covers your garments with sin. It will make your life a living hell at times. So don't do it. Don't be tempted to believe the lie of culture. Psalm 22, Jesus says, and Jesus echoed these words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Father God, why have you turned your back on me? Why won't you look at me anymore? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am not silent, but you are holy. You see, God couldn't look on Jesus. Couldn't look on Jesus. God had to turn His face away from His Son because of the pain of every divorce that would ever happen. Every sin that mankind would ever undertake was heaped on the back of Jesus. Every last thing that we can dredge up that's an affront to God was placed on Jesus at the cross. That's why He was scourged. That's why He was beaten. That's why He was nailed to the cross. That's why He said to tell us die. It's finished. You don't have to walk in the pain of that anymore. But it doesn't mean that the consequences will go away. You can be eternally forgiven because of the blood of the cross. You can be made right with God. And God doesn't want you to go through that pain that will be the residual effect. And so He says, look, don't do it. Don't do it. He goes on. For they have pierced my hands and feet. I remember this was written in 1050 BC, BCE if you prefer. 
at least 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's prophetically speaking of you-know-who. None other than the Lord Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to provide grace. Amen? And so as we hold these elements in our hand, little holes pierced for you. The little brown edges on here, the bruises that he took for you. The cup, the blood that he shed for you so that you wouldn't have to pay your own price. He paid it for you. He freed you. And so no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're even thinking about, why? Because He loves you. And He'll always love you. Divorced or not, He'll always love you. And as we partake, remember what He did at the cross. By His stripes, we are healed. Amen? Let's partake together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Oh, Lord God, what can we say? Jesus, how do we mouth words that are sufficient for the grace that we've received by the blood of the cross? Lord, we love You. And we thank You that the deepest pains that we will ever experience in this life were covered when your hands and feet were pierced, when you were beaten and bruised, when you said, is this finished? And so, Lord, we honor you in remembrance of these things. We pray that you would continually wash us and make us new, heal the wounds, God. For those of us that have been touched by the ravages of divorce God would you just bind those wounds and heal us would you speak truth into the lives of those who might even be contemplating it today Lord you've always hated it it's never been your plan and so God thank you that your grace covers all of our sin we love you we bless you We honor you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?